Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring it Dan Alpert, shall we? Westwood Capital Managing Partner, he joins us right now. Dan, we kick things off this Monday, still reflecting on Friday through the weekend. The payrolls report and then the president's actions. Put the two together for us, Dan. Well, the bottom line is that this rapid crash in U.S. employment, which is not getting recovered from anytime soon, threatens to descend further into systemic crisis. Uh, we're going to see households unable to pay their bills. And small and medium-sized employers who give jobs to about 50% of American workers uh, failing as uh, aggregate demand collapses and extended pandemic and, you know, end of essential support to households. So it's, it's really going to be a problem. And, you know, you were talking about the equity markets a few minutes ago. This period's beginning to resemble that of September 1929 to April 1930, when the equity market recovered 50% from post-crash lows. Uh, government policy errors were building up during that period. And what did you get? You got the Great Depression. So this is very serious stuff. The granularity, Dan Alpert, of your wonderful work with Cornell JQI is just stunning. What was the granularity of the report that got your attention for so much of America that's struggling? Well, you know, what happened was we saw those enormous increases in jobs and then decreases in unemployment in May and June. And you started looking at the sectors in which you saw the increases. Yeah. And they were leisure and hospitality and dentist's office and other things, you know, retail, fully closed. Uh, and so you start to scratch your head and say, why are all these people adding back jobs when they're still closed? Um, so we went out and surveyed about 6,400 people and found out that, in fact, you know, uh, we were now starting to see repeat layoffs of people who had been, quote, unquote, repayrolled. And we started to look into that and realized that it was, this, it was the PPP program going on, the payroll protection program going on, that was actually encouraging, rightly so, by the way, encouraging employers to repayroll their people. Uh, and they were doing that. But what we discovered was that of the people who were repayrolled, 39% of them weren't actually working. Okay, well, fine. I mean, that's within your data. What does that mean for GDP? I mean, what John and I want to do on a Monday, Dan Alpert, is get out to September, get out to October, folks, full disclosure. I see very few, little of that in the literature. Dan Alpert, can you take that research and get out to September or get out to October? Yeah, I think what that means is, is two things. Well, you've got two things going on at the same time. One is uh, you have a lot of businesses that have been able to extend their lives only through government support. Those businesses are now going to be put up against a pandemic surging country and won't be able to continue and may not be there in September and October and next year to reemploy yeah. the people. The, the, the second part is that you now are really facing a systemic crisis. I mean, if households cannot pay their mortgages, pay their rents, they're going to use whatever money they have to eat. Um, you're going to right. see this potentially trickle into a financial crisis. So that's what the fourth quarter looks like if we don't do something. John, this is so important. Benjamin Applebaum with a great essay in the New York Times on this this weekend on evictions. John, I see a dearth. That's the only word I'm using today. It's dearth Monday. I see almost no energy put into what October looks like right now. Tom, I can't get past next week. Never mind October. And Dan, I think that's <laughs> I what's fascinating yeah. about the payrolls report. You and I have been talking about it, Dan. The survey 
week. Who would have thought the survey week in a payrolls report could be the difference between positive a million and negative a million? Dan, is that really where we are? Yeah, I mean, right now, the 20-day delay between the survey date and the PLS report and the actual presentation of that report is actually more than 20 days. Is, is too much time in this crisis. Too much is happening during that period of time, and it's been going on for months. So right now, you, you know, the, if, the, if the survey data that we have is correct, what you're going to see in August is that negative number. You're going to see the reversal of these three months of job growth and the opposite occur. You're going to see increased layoffs and a boost in the uh, unemployment rate. This, Tom, is why everyone still thinks so much more still needs to be done down in Washington, D.C. Something is better than nothing, but let's talk about the something we got over the weekend. The president has basically instructed to redirect funds for disaster relief towards unemployment benefits. The enhanced benefit now from the federal side, Tom, $300. They asked the states to chip in another $100. No one knows if, one, you can process this quickly, and two, how long it will last. Bloomberg Economics are saying it could be gone. In a couple of months, Tom. Yeah. And as for the deferral of payroll taxes, we know look, what that hinges look, on. Will the employers uh, actually follow through in releasing John, those funds or not? John, there was great research on this over the weekend. Republicans, Democrats, the whole thing. Focus on this, John. The Republican senator from Nebraska called it unconstitutional. You don't need to know anything else. He went further. He called it unconstitutional slop. But Dan Alpert, what I didn't hear over the weekend was Democrats ready to make a legal challenge because right now, politically speaking, who on earth wants to be seen challenging what the president announced over the weekend? Look, these are all political backflips, not economic policymaking. Um, you know, to the extent that, that uh, money can flow out and to the extent that the states can actually get it out to households, which is a big question mark, um, through Trump's action, that's great. It, de- it delays some of the problem and defers it for another month, and hopefully there's some political sanity that can actually emerge. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is, this is something that is so much bigger than just what the president signed over the weekend. And the biggest part of it to me is making sure that those small and medium-sized employers are there to re-employ people when this virus finally comes under control. Yes, um, you can probably put a Band-Aid on the systemic crisis if you can get some money to households to enable them to pay their rents and mortgages. But at the end of the day, there's going to be right. no jobs. And that's the, bigger, that's the bigger of the two problems. And nothing the president did this weekend has anything to do with that. Dan, I want to go back to your wonderful book, The Age of Oversupply. What we have in abundance right now is an oversupply of money. There are trillions of dollars laying around looking for something to do. What happens to our oversupply of capital? Well, this has been something that's been going on for a couple of decades. The, the, the problem is, and, and this has occurred before, when you have a situation where uh, there is no really good opportunity for risk-free uh, returns, meaning you know, in, in uh, sovereign bonds, um, you're going to see that money start to flail around looking for some sort of yield and making excuses every which way it turns. They're going to, you know, people are going to go into the stock market because the stock market's risen for the last few weeks. Uh, people are going to go into gold because <clears throat> gold has risen for the last few weeks. You see all sorts of things out there that are functionally non-economic and that are basically, ba- you know, rooted in market momentum. There's absolutely right. no rationale for any of this. Will Biden make a difference? A President Biden, does that make a difference in Dan Alpert's American view? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think an enormous difference because clearly this administration is dysfunctional. But, you know, think about another thing. Think about what happens after November 3rd. Even if there was not some hellacious battle over who won the election, you've got a long interregnum during which someone needs to make policy. And the question is, at that point, you're still you're going to have a lame duck Congress. People are going, you know, maybe you'll see a turnover in the Senate, maybe you won't. But at the end of the day, who is going to be there to make policy? Right now, we are floating in an ocean without an oar. Dan Alpert, great to catch up with you, sir. Yeah. Great way to kick things Good off problem. this Monday morning. Dan Alpert there of Westwood Capital on this economy and the state of politics down in Washington, D.C. Mark Zandi, you have a chart that speaks volumes in your latest research on the participation across age and the participation across races in America. What does it say? Well, participation collapsed in the uh, pandemic. Uh, we're down about two percentage points from where we were pre-pandemic, and it's across the board, across all ages, uh, ethnic groups, uh, uh, educational attainment. Uh, you know, some variation, but it just shows you the stress in the labor market. In fact, Tom, if uh, those folks that had stepped out of the workforce uh, step back in and continue and start to look for work, the unemployment rate, uh, properly measured, would be closer to 14 percent, not the 10 percent that the BLS Okay, well, I want to stop you right there. This is really, really important because John and I get a ton of email, Mark Zandi, which says, Mark Zandi's right. The 10 percent number is a fiction. Is the 10 percent number a fiction? Yeah, it doesn't do justice to the stress in the labor market. It's a fiction in that sense. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's properly uh, – uh, it, it, they haven't changed any of their methodology, the BLS, the keeper of the data. So it's, 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 it's accurate in that sense, but it's not giving you us a clear sense of the stress in the labor market. I mean, people have stepped out of the workforce. They're not looking – uh, and they want a job. Uh, they don't think it's uh, viable to find one. So if you uh, consider those folks, uh, you know, the level of stress is a lot higher. That 14% is probably more representative of what's going on than the 10%. But but even 10%, you know, uh, is uh, a pretty tough labor market. Uh, in the peak of the financial, the peak of the unemployment rate in the financial crisis was 10% for one month. So it, uh, the stress is very high. Mark, our colleague, Michael McKee, always says there's a big difference between jobs created and jobs restored. And whenever he sees these payrolls report, especially over the last few months, he will refer to them as jobs restored. Can you walk us through the jobs that won't be coming back, Mark, the permanent scarring you're already seeing in this labour market? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So a lot of the jobs that we've lost in retail and leisure hospitality, transportation, anything to do with uh, tourism, travel, recreation... You know they they obviously have gotten creamed in the pandemic. They're they're they some of them have gotten some of those jobs have been restored, but many many of those jobs are unlikely to come back or unlikely to come back any time in the foreseeable future. I mean, business models are going to change. Uh, an example would be business travel. So, you know, I have a couple hundred economists who work for me across the globe. Um, my big, biggest expense is compensation. Second is rent, and the third is travel. Before all this, but. <clears throat> You know, given uh, the pandemic and given all the technological changes, we're not going back to the kind of travel we had before. And I'm, I suspect many, many businesses around the world are in the same position. So that's a that's a business model that will have to change, and that means there's going to be a lot, lot fewer jobs. Just to give you <clears throat> give, give you a sense of it, uh, we lost 22 million jo- jobs in March and April. 
We've gotten, uh, you know, roughly 9 million of those backs. We're down 13, probably get another 3 million back by the end of the year. And that that's where it's just the last 10 million, getting that last 10 million back is not going to be easy. It's going to take time. Probably won't get there until uh, well into the middle part of this decade. Mark, you mentioned travel. How much of that is vaccine dependent and how much of it is managers looking around, like in the new cost structure, and say, you know what, we're sticking with this? Well, I think with tourism, it's about, it's about vaccine and confidence that people aren't, aren't going to get sick, uh, you know, particularly people who travel, people in their 50s and 60s, 70s, you know, the baby boomers. Uh, you know, they, they're not going to travel until there's a vaccine they feel comfortable with and they feel like they're not going to get sick, uh, you know, somewhere uh, outside of their home. So uh, that, that'll come back with the vaccine. But the business travel, that, I just don't see that coming back in the same way, right. uh, or at least not coming back anytime soon. Mike, uh, Mark, I want to go to the x-axis. I want to go to the time function here of this stimulus. You've done some political work, I'm not going to say representing Democratic politics, but they have used your good research from Moody's analytics, the Obama administration. There's no question about that. Do you sense an urgency in this, in this August in Washington, or are they just slipping their way into a September that's too late? Yeah, well, they better have a sense of urgency. I mean, if they don't act, and, and I should say the president's executive orders really doesn't advance the ball in any significant degree. It, they're, what he's proposed or what he's ordered is unworkable. Uh, nothing's going to change. And even if he got exactly what he wanted today, uh, it's not enough. Uh, so they, yeah. they need a sense of urgency. If they, if they don't pass a right. substantive fiscal rescue package, we're going back into recession. And, and John Farrow, in this odd weekend that we have here, I think one of my great observations is never, ever, ever, John, have I seen conservative economists in such sharp agreement with liberal economists. They all say the same thing. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Well, Tom, they know the recovery is constrained. So you need some kind of demand-side response. You need something to offset the shocks to income because the recovery is constrained by the virus. And my, my question would be for you as an economist looking out, let's try and get out to the end of the year. How do you provide any kind of forecast whatsoever without a deeper understanding of what underpins that forecast, which is fiscal stimulus? Yeah, it's an assumption, right? I mean, I, I'm assuming the economy makes its way through without going back into recession, but that's based on two key assumptions. One, that the the pandemic remains relatively contained, doesn't get meaningfully worse than, you know, where we are today in terms of infections and hospitalization. That's a big assumption. And then, of course, what's going on in Washington in fiscal policy. Now, you know, in my baseline, where I assume we make our way through, I'm assuming a $1.5 trillion fiscal rescue package. Just for context, what the president has proposed, again, even if he gets exactly what he has ordered, it's about $400 billion. So, you know, just to give you context, it, it's just not, it's simply just not enough. Uh, and, and that's, that, that's not, he's not going to be able to execute on that. The things he's being, he's asked for are just right. unworkable anytime in, in, in the foreseeable future. What is your run rate on GDP 12 months forward? Uh, well, t- 12 months forward, I, you know, by then I hope we have a vaccine. So I hope we're off and running by then. But between now and then, uh, you know, uh, late this year, early next, I, I don't, think we're going anywhere fast so we'll, we'll be treading water it's, it's a push and pull it's the it's the, uh, the the headwind created by the virus and the ongoing pandemic and the effect that's having on on uh, on consumers and businesses and then the the tailwind of any fiscal rescue if we, if we don't get the tailwind we don't get the fiscal rescue then the headwind's going to blow us right back into recession and uh, you know unemployment's going to be rising not falling 
Mark, be honest about the profession right now in economics, and this is certainly not a dig at your profession. I just want a deeper understanding of how uncertain it is and how much we should look at these forecasts and actually pay any attention to them at the moment, 12 months out, Mark, because things are so, so difficult a week out, two months out, a quarter out. Yeah, great point. I mean, that's why, you know, you can't rely on a for- one forecast. You have to run different scenarios. And, and if you're a prudent planner, a prudent business person, you know, you guard against the downside. So you can't just take the, you know, the you're expected down the middle of the distribution of possible economic outcomes because uh, the distribution is very wide and there's a, a boatload of uncertainty. And, and, that, and that's one reason why the economy can't get going, right? I mean, if you're a business person, and you can't make a forecast if you can't put numbers in the spreadsheet and calculate a return on investment. You're not going to make an investment. You're not going to hire. You're not going to expand. And that's one of the key reasons why it's just. I think it's pretty hard for us to get going here until uh, the pandemic is over, until we have a vaccine that people feel good about. Mark Zandi of Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to catch up with you, sir. She has a trifecta of competencies on Wall Street with J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Diana Omoa joins us, uh, CFA, and also with their great work on foreign exchange and portfolio management of XFX. Even better, formerly a trader with UBS, and there's nothing like losing money as a trader to uh, give you clarity as a portfolio manager. Diana, wonderful to have you uh, with us right now. Let us turn, first of all, to the linkage of the dollar to your world of emerging markets. Is it about dollar dynamics or is it EM by itself? It's a bit of both, um, just, uh, Tom, just to kind of look at it. Um, like most of the markets in FX, we do see bifurcation playing out in a big way. So for the DM-sensitive EM currencies, so we're talking about Central and Eastern European um, currencies and some pockets of Asia, um, broad dollar dynamics do matter. And those currencies have actually done reasonably well year to date versus the broad dollar. Um, for the high yielding emerging markets, it's more on a case by case basis where the fundamental starting point does really make a big difference on how the currency performs. So you look at Turkey um, as a good example, that's really struggled to do well because the fundamental starting point um, doesn't change and that's not aided by a weaker dollar. Diana, typically we talk about one country in EM getting in trouble and then we talk about contagion risk to the rest of the complex. From your perspective, how much exposure is there to Turkey given what's happened over the last several years? It feels like every 12 months we have the same conversation. How many people have actually de-risked and reduced exposure to Turkey that a move like this in the last week or so is irrelevant for the rest of the complex? So that's, um, that's an interesting question, John, and there's two ways you can look at it. One, the economic exposure for companies and countries to Turkey has become ring-fenced in recent years. The, vulnerable, the vulnerabilities that Turkey faces are not new to markets. Uh, so companies have had opportunities to ring-fence their economic exposure there. Um, in terms of the impact to broader financial assets, um, so this is the contagion of weakness in Turkey spilling over to other markets. Uh, two points. One, we see that playing out more in the weaker credit. So where these vulnerabilities underpinning an economy, so South Africa would be a good case. But then two, this is August, right? And we know August is usually quite a liquid month. So those moves in Turkey could potentially spill over. Uh, but if we do start to see that moving to better credit, our, our, 
our bias would be actually to look for where that contagion is unwarranted to add risk. Where would that be if you started to see it? So um, I'll give you an example. Let's say if we saw the move in Turkey impacting, um, say, somewhere like Mexico, just because it's considered a, another high-yield country, I think that would present interesting opportunities for us to buy uh, because the fundamental picture is vastly different in Mexico. So there's no reason you should see Mexico selling off because Turkey is coming under pressure. Whether you're looking at real rates with Mexico having some of the highest uh, in the world uh, versus Turkey, whether you're looking at inflation dynamics or policy credibility, that's a totally different story. Um, so for us, there are markets that we would actually see Turkey-related weakness as a very good opportunity to get involved in. Diana Moa, what is so important to me is the slowdown in GDP. And when I look at the world trade charts, they're exceptionally distressing. How close are we to not financial crisis, but liquidity issues within EM because of a, a lack of world trade? We were much closer to that in Q1, Q2 than we are today, Tom. Um, we are seeing... A small rebound in trade, actually. When you look at the China data, we have seen a pickup in activity coming through there. Um, economies have reopened, so exports are starting to pick up again in aggregate, which is promising. And we think the fact that we've passed peak shutdown, um, we don't expect to see close downs to the extent that we had in Q1 is actually um, a support. Um, additionally, the bigger concern, so there's liquidity and there's solvency, the big concern in the midst of the, the shutdown was whether EM economies would be able to access markets. We've seen sovereigns come and issue debt, and investors actually, in this low-yield rate, uh, are willing to finance that. So today, I'd say those sorts of concerns are much less than they were three months ago. How do you play that then? I believe you're suggesting to John a risk-on feel in EM. Where would you place that risk-on? Uh, we'd look for one, select EMs that have exposures to the European recovery story. So Poland, Czech, uh, come to Eastern mind. Europe, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, we'd look for pockets of Asia um, <clears throat> that should continue to do well. When you look at how China is dealing with the virus compared to the rest of the world, there's no doubt that they are well ahead of the curve. And economic activity there is rebounding. So that's probably the one economy that will have positive GDP growth in 2020. So we look for economies that have economic linkages to China in parts of Asia um, to buy both duration and FX exposure. And then in the high yield market, it's very much on a case by case basis. So you look at where you have strong uh, fundamentals, where you have credible policy. Mexico is one that I've mentioned. Um, Russia potentially, but we want to see what happens in the elections first, in the US elections. Diana, great to catch up with you, as always on a really important topic this morning. Diana Ramoa of JP Morgan Asset Management. We've had a great joy in speaking with Jonathan Quick. He's with the Rockefeller Foundation, their managing director, and of course affiliated uh, with Duke University. His work at Rochester and Harvard over uh, the years, and of course his wonderful book, The End of Academics. Dr. Quick, we need an update, and the update to me is a resounding success in deaths of New York State. Not only on a log chart is it concave, but there seems to be a real deacceleration in the grim news in New York State. Let's begin with the good news. How did they do it? 
Well, they did it by applying uh, the basic uh, lessons and basic techniques that we have available to us. Uh, We've seen in country after country and now state um, after state in a growing number that if you if you get the majority of the population following those personal protective habits, distancing, face masks, hand washing, avoiding uh, these uh, super spreader uh, large indoor gatherings. If you do that and you also make some adaptations in your workplaces and communities, uh, you, you can you can drive this virus back. And and that's what it's been. It's been a collective action. And it, it's what uh, what you might call herd behavior. Uh, we don't have herd immunity yet from a vaccine. It'll be a while, as, as you've been uh, discussing. But um, but we do have herd behavior. If all of us take those lessons and apply them in our daily lives, um, in our businesses, our schools, and, and our uh, communities. The distinction this morning is, I guess there's a lowering case level. That's wonderful news in a stable to rising death level. Do you just presume the death level will decrease because we're now seeing lesser cases? Well, there, that's part of it. That's obviously if you get a few people, in, fewer people infected, you're going to have fewer deaths. Uh, but the other bit of, of um, good news is that we are getting better at, at treating coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're finding that um, we can... <clears throat> Uh, be less. We can use respirators less and rely more on on, on oxygen. Uh, we're finding several medicines, a, a, a age-old uh, steroid, dexamethasone, which for people who are on ventilators will cut the death rate by by a third. Um, and we're using uh, some other new uh, drugs like uh, remdesivir, which for people who right. aren't, you know. So we, we've got a combination. <clears throat> Um, the other factor is that the newer cases seem to be more in the younger age groups, so there's a, a, a lower um, a lower death right, rate there. Right. So yeah, combination yeah, d- of factors. Doctor Quick, uh, Lisa emails in from New York where she's just waking up, and Lisa uh, wants to know: Should the kids go back to school? Way in here on the back to school right now. So uh, I mean this this is a this is a challenging issue. I mean <clears throat> everybody wants to get the kids back to schools. The parents do, uh, the, the teachers do, the schools do, uh, the students do. And um, the reality is that there are some parts of the country where the, the community spread is so low that, um, that we can probably be pretty close to normal with schools. The, the other side of it, though, is, is that there are places where community spread is so great that it's probably not the time to to go back to um, in in school. So what we're seeing uh, is uh, communities looking at the evidence. Uh, the teachers, the National Teachers Association and the National um, Academy of Pediatrics, many have provided guidance. And community by community, they're looking to see what's going to work for us, for teachers, for students, for the bus drivers, for the janitors, for everybody involved. And um, this is going to be a COVID year. It's not going to be a normal year. We, we can't just um, uh, wish away the virus. But what we can do is develop uh, ways of getting back to school that work for our communities. A lot of this, Doctor, and comes he- back to testing. And one complaint we've heard repeatedly 
is the test takes time to get the results. Now, Doctor, I'm just wondering, how do you get those times down a whole lot more quickly? So uh, we've, we, when we set out the Rockefeller Foundation, the testing, national testing uh, action plan, uh, the first step was scaling up the lab-based diagnostic tests. And we moved, we got a five-fold increase over, over three months from a million tests a week to five million tests a week. But the result of that, plus these surges, is is that the delays are such that the tests are, are useless. By the time you get the results, you've spread. So the next phase, and we, we launched last uh, uh, two weeks ago, a, um, a strategy that's based on antigen testing by fast turnaround, rapid tests, point of care, screening tests. And these don't require sending tests off to the lab and back again. They can be done in workplaces, communities, and schools. And these newer screening tests are absolutely vital for, com- for workplaces, for nursing homes, for schools. So last week, uh, working initially with six governors and now eight governors, they've come together and made a, a joint commitment for a major purpose of a purchase of antigen screening tests to use in, in their states. And those are within uh, minutes or hours turnaround. And the big advantage of that is if you do get tested positive, um, and these are about 80% plus sensitive, so we'll get 80% of those who need to be pulled out of, yeah. of circulation and, and, um, and then the contacts traced. So, so that's really the next phase. It's a paradigm shift in testing. It's a whole new testing technology. But that's what we need uh, to, right. uh, to get us to the level of testing we need to, Doctor, to thank you. stand open. Appreciate your time this morning. As always, Dr. Jonathan Quick there, the Rockefeller Foundation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.